0: Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This is number two in our summer series of books for you to read and to gift to other people at Christmas time. Joining me in the studio, as always, is my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. Good morning again, Scott. Uh, another great episode coming up today. Uh, another great episode and another wonderful collection of books and speakers. Yes, and uh, we've we've had a week to. Read
1: all the others and... Yeah, uh, no, no, fascinating, The all six of them.
0: Yep. So this week we have some great books. We have uh, The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray, which Renee Gorman will be talking to us about. Uh, Zach Gorman will be talking about a book on the American, what's called the counter-revolution in favour of liberty. Uh, Gideon Rosner will be talking about a novel from the great Rowan Dean. Dan Wilde will be talking about The Rise of Victimhood Culture, a book by sociologist Brad Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning. Uh, And then we get to talk about our books as well, Chris. Mm, Finally. Uh, Your book is called Rebooting AI, Building Intelligence We Can Trust. And my book is called...
1: Escape from Rome, The Failure of Empire and the Road to Prosperity. How's that for teamwork? Wow!
0: Don't forget that this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you'd like to learn more about how to join or donate or to access our terrific research, go to ipa.org.au. In, but otherwise, we'll be back in a moment with uh, the Gormans and to talk about some books. There's a couple of terrific books coming up in the next discussion, and some terrific presenters to walk us through them. And this is, segment is not a Gorman Gast; it's a Gorman Fest. I have on my right Dr. Zach Gorman. Hello. And on my
1: left, Renee Gorman.
2: Thanks for having me. I on. just want us to
1: roll back there. Gorman Gast, not a Gorman Fest.
0: It's a, it's a it's a series of fantasy novels. Okay. All right. yeah, yeah. Set in a mythical universe full of gormans, sure, I think. All right. Where everyone's called <laughs> well, you've gormans. You've only been preparing that for a couple of weeks now. Yeah, so no, so. no, no, I just made it up on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't tell. <laughs> Other books that I haven't read. Um, (laughs) Zachary Gorman, Research Fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs and Renee Gorman, who is the National Manager of our Generation Liberty Program and made many wonderful contributions to our podcast this year. So it's great to have you talking on our summer special about books that our listeners should read over the long, hot break to come. What have you got for us, Seth?
3: Well, I've got a book that you won't hear about anywhere else because I Googled um, reviews and there was about one on Amazon and that (laughs) that was about the most official review I could find of it. Um, And that largely seems to be because this is um, Ivan Jankovic's first book. It is the product of his PhD thesis. Um, he has some connections to the Mises Institute in America, where he's done at least one, pub, one article for them. But otherwise, he's a very new author and he's bringing real fresh eyes to an old topic, which is the American Revolution, which he dubs the American counter revolution in favor of liberty, which is the title of the book. So it's a pretty old idea that the American Revolution was a conservative revolution. Edmund Burke defended it on those grounds that what the Americans were claiming was actually British liberties, that the right to not be taxed without representation they thought at the time to be based in Magna Carta, even though arguably it's not. But Jankovic's argument goes a lot deeper than that. He sort of views America as a time capsule of this medieval world where the nation state, as we know it, this idea of a all-powerful body with a monopolization on the legitimate use of force didn't exist. And you just had a series of local communities, some of which, some towns in America didn't even have any connection to their colonial governments. They were purely independent polities. And what happened was, with the Glorious Revolution and the triumph of parliamentary sovereignty, you had the triumph of this um, centralising nation-state that had not previously existed, and it took about 100 years, but eventually the clawing hands of that centralising nation-state looked over uh, over the Atlantic Ocean to its empire and tried to centralise and claim the right to tax and regulate in a manner that had not previously done so.
0: Yeah, so, while the, so I hadn't heard of it either, so thank, thank you, Zach, but... Um, so it's this idea that, um, so the original settlements in the 13 colonies were basically like 1600s, 1700s. And so they'd been separated from Europe at precisely that moment that these great state formations were happening and certainly the the British state went from being relatively dispersed to something um, much stronger and more centralised. And, you know, the, 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 the Stuarts, is that sort of the idea that, um, they, they'd been uh, sent across the Atlantic at a time before the state had really taken on that form in, for the English. And then and then when that state power came along and tried to impose itself in North America, that's when the reaction started.
3: Yeah, certainly. So we're talking about a sort of time period around the time of the Treaty of Westphalia and all these real big stepping stones as far as the development of the nation state. And it's a combination of that time capsule effect and also the just the sort of frontier idea of these people just going out and creating a um, spontaneous order, creating these new communities that had not previously existed, and creating really successful communities. And that's sort of the other um, angle of the book: is the extent to which what we value, and certainly what the American author values about America, predated the state. That this um, that a lot of what is associated with the development of capitalism as far as the modernizing trends of the nation state and Walpole and the establishment of state banks and um, printed currency and all these sorts of things, that that actually came after um, the real bedrock of capitalism, which had been more spontaneous, which had been more about this loosening of feudal ties and loosening of the previous restrictions of what people could do before the state came along and sort of imposed new restrictions on people. As the author sort of says, a parasite can't grow on a dead host. So we have this, we have <laughs> this.
0: Pretty libertarian. What a movie, scholarly. Yeah. So we have this, so, yeah.
3: we have this um, historical phenomenon where you have the growth of the nation-state that seems to be simultaneous with the growth of capitalism, but it's basically that. His argument is that capitalist wealth is creating opportunities to create a nation state that didn't exist in a feudal time period where you had to rely on sort of local barons and these sorts of things in order to impose taxation.
1: There's a debate I don't think is had enough about American history, which seems to feed into this, um, and I look forward to reading the book. And that's about the relationship between the Articles of Confederation and the, what was ultimately... The federal government. So, um, in the wake of the um, uh, Declaration of Independence, they established a what is effectively a loose confederation of the thirteen colonies into the Articles of Confederation um, from 1781. That was ultimately replaced by what we now know as the American Constitution, um, uh, because a lot of people were complaining. A lot of the founders. Um, uh, and a lot of the 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 um the the sort of people that we think about as the great founders of liberty, they didn't believe the federal government was powerful enough. It, it, does he go into the the articles of confederation debate i yeah, I, I well, think it's an unheralded liberal libertarian revolutionary aspect that somehow because um, of the way Americans think about their national history has been sort of swept away.
3: That's sort of his argument. And he's very much writing to an American audience that's used to a traditional narrative of how the American Revolution happened. And the traditional narrative is that they set up the Articles of Confederation, which was this very loose tie between each of the colonies, and that that ultimately didn't work. In In 1787, you had to create a centralised federal government in order to pay back the debt that you had incurred from the Revolutionary War and several other things. But he actually points out that the people who set up the Constitution in 1787 had been saying the same thing in 1776. They'd been in (laughs) the room and arguing against the Articles of Confederation and for a more centralised system, and they had lost that debate at that particular point in time, and they won it in 1787. So it's not that there was this change of mind. It was just a mm. change of who was in control.
0: Yeah, no, it, it is interesting. And I think it was um, – uh, Chris is right. It's, it's understudied. It, it reminded me of this whole period because the American conservative right um, has talks about the founding, and so uh, it's it's a real elision between the Declaration of Independence and the, and the founding – uh, of the modern constitution, those uh, 11 years or whatever it is are sort of they're not quite airbrushed out, but it's when they talk about the founding, you're really mushing together the Declaration of Institu- uh, Declaration of Insta- Independence and the Constitution. And, and so this book has been helpful in reminding me that that was a period of time, there was an argument coming up. And um, they're two
1: different things. Two and 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 they're two they're two different things. and one is clearly superior from a liberty perspective, in at least in my view, because one of them creates a massive or not initially massive, but creates the structure for a massive federal government, for an all-powerful, Presidential system for a all-powerful presidential system that is so significant that is so powerful that they actually have debates about whether to describe George Washington as his majesty or something like that. That's a genuine debate that they have and thank goodness they didn't but you can see so many of the problems that we have with the American presidential executive power system um, in those founding debates and it's fascinating to uh, imagine what would have happened had um, had had the other guys won, if you will? So had the had, the had the articles of the confederation been recognised for as the pro liberty constitution that it was?
3: And you, there's a couple of elements to this. First of all, that yeah, that the argument of the book is that basically the reasons the revolutionary war got fought get completely overturned in 1787. So if if you understand 1776 as a rebellion against the centralising concept of the modern nation state and with its um, mercantilist economic ideology where it wants protectionism, all these sorts of things, then that all all gets imposed from 1787. So the the war isn't won, according to this narrative, to a certain extent. But then the flip side of this is that even though the drafters in 1787 wanted a centralising state and said so in the actual sort of constitutional debates when they were writing it up, when it came to actually getting it ratified, they had to tone down their rhetoric a bit like um, a democratic nominee playing to the base to get the the, um, the nomination, but then having to come back to the centre. Well, they have to come back to the centre when it comes to ratification. And that's when you start to get them talking about the way in which there's going to be checks and balances and sort of the modern theories of federalism that we more associate with federalism as a way of sort of impeding the power of the nation state. But federalism impedes the power of a nation state compared to a nation state. It still <laughs> implies the power of a nation state to compared to that not existing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Renee, where, where do you fall on? Articles of Confederation, the um, American Revolution?
0: declaration of independence <laughs> we hold these truths to be self-evident
2: i look forward to reading the book but i do have to confess i do not have enough knowledge about it to speak about it
0: <laughs> but, but you are familiar with i mean the american idea ideals of of, of liberty are, uh, if if at the very least it is part of the mythology if you like of, of the conservative right and, and not not incorrectly i mean certainly the ideals of liberty yet are in there i mean what what do we draw from that american experience
2: I find that the the American experience is very much interweaved into the young liberty movement in Australia and you get a lot of Americanisms when talking about liberty. So our whole concept of liberty in the West is kind of based on America. I was also wondering during that discussion whether um, a lot of these mistakes were made because um, they assumed that some men would be just as good as George Washington. George Washington (laughs) was the man who said, no, I am not your majesty or your excellence I am just the president and he could have ruled as a king but he stepped down and chose not to and it worked for that period but there wasn't enough barriers in the way because there's got to be a lot of men who do want to rule as a king.
0: Exactly, yes. I think he's, he's explicitly harkened back to uh, Cincinnatus, the, uh, the Roman consul who uh, came out of retirement from his farm to, to fight in the wars against Carthage and then after he defeated the Carthaginians, he just went back to his farm and, and that was the ideal <laughs> of the day.
2: There, oh, oh. There's actually a really beautiful um, uh, statue of Washington in the Smithsonian in Washi- uh, in DC, um, a statue that was never put up because people found it a bit confronting because it actually has Washington with a bare chest. <laughs> um, and he's got a like Ro- Roman toga around the bottom. Sexy Washington. Um, but yeah. he's actually giving the sword back to the people.
0: (laughs) Ah, fabulous.
2: And it's it's larger than life and it's gorgeous and it's sad that it's not on display.
1: I want to pick up something um, uh, and we've described it as a mistake, which is a really interesting way to think about constitutional history as a series of errors. Um, And not, not that the American Constitution is fundamentally... Uh, uh, mistaken but what it uh, one of the things that I've been most influenced by is an argument um, made by uh, a public choice economist actually William Riker who pointed out that um, the Americans when they were conceiving of the role of the federal government and when they were when the American founders, the the ones we, we think about as the winners in this story, and when they were thinking about the weaknesses of the Articles of, Confedera- uh, of Confederation, were looking at previous federations and making interpretations about why they thought they did or didn't work. And the one they were looking at at was the Dutch Republic itself a, um, uh, a, a quote federal system, but not with a strong federal government, just a agreement and um, effectively a series of contracts about you know when when will we um, uh, when will we tax, when will we do these sorts of things. So it's sort of a Articles of Confederation. Now White- Riker's argument is that they badly misread it and they badly misunderstood how the Dutch Republic actually worked. um, We know what they read about it. We know what books they had in translation. Nobody spoke or read Dutch, so they weren't in a position to go back to original sources. And they got some really fundamental things wrong. Um, And then they translated that wrong, that mistake about how the Dutch system worked into a critique of the Articles of Confederation, which then led many of them to believe we need a strong federal government. I think that's a fascinating story by itself, but it's even more interesting if you also think about the Australian Constitution, Mm. because the Australian Constitution is a interpretation of the American Constitution as well, not that it, it's it's a West so Westminster it's er, system. Error piled upon error. Error piled upon error. It's a Australia has a Westminster system, but it also has states, and it also has to have a quote states house. So it um, tried to transpose what it thought the American system looked like onto the Australian states, the the um, colonies getting together, and doing so made a series of errors that has left us where we are.
3: Well, even when you talk about sort of the problems with the High Court and the problems with interpreting documents and all these sorts of things, even in the immediate aftermath of 1787, Jefferson is making these arguments that it's not actually the Supreme Court who should be interpreting the Constitution, that the Supreme Court was meant to interpret the the sort of Constitution and the workings of the federal government internally. But as far as anything to do with the relationship between the federal government and the states, that each of the states should have a right of veto to anything that was going on that interfered with them because they were original parties to the agreement. And according to contract law, <laughs> it's the parties to the agreement that get to get to sort of define how they understand the agreement. So, understand. so in
1: that story, the Supreme Court is playing more of a sort of solicitor general role type as an internal consultancy body.
3: Yeah, and, and Jefferson was obviously... In France, I'm pretty sure at the time of uh, at the time of 1787. So he's not. That's probably one of the tragedies of 1787 is that you. There are certain really great thinkers that aren't around for the writing of the Constitution that were there for the Declaration of Independence. But certainly that the, the and there's all sorts of arguments about whether the in American constitutional law that have um, direct parallels here about. Whether the um, whether the states were parties to an agreement, or whether it was the American people who were parties mm. to the agreement, and how that defines whether federalism will win out, and whether the sort of centralism will fit win out, and all these other debates that this weighs into, that are really fascinating, but are, you're not necessarily going to be familiar with them as an Australian, but there's so many parallels with yeah. the federal system. It
0: is interesting. I mean, the I. That's it. I do have to point out the elephant in the room, though, which is, um, so he's got the perspective, you know, going back to the Articles of Confederation or a, or a more dispersed and decentralised constitutional order, which I would generally agree with. But in the American context, of course, you know, the nullification by the states of federal laws was one of the arguments used in the 19th century uh, in the South. So So this is inextricably... Tied up in the American uh, historical consciousness with how these debates played out, you know, afterwards, and in you know, states' rights was too often it was too often a states' right to enforce slavery.
3: Well, that's that that's the problem, and that's what that's sort of the victory that the centralizers have had is they've been able to tar every states' writer with a confederate um, brush. We don't have that. Um, tradition in Australia so we can preach the same things without those sort of negative connotations and we're a lot we're a lot freer to from our historical perspective to look at the real benefits of that decentralization without necessarily um, looking at 1860 and all the rest of it but there was even in that interpretation um, there's a lot of hypocrisy at the same time that Lincoln was fighting a war against secession he allowed West Virginia to secede from Virginia so it was it wasn't necessarily a, a war fought on constitutional principles. No, ah,
0: no, no. He was fighting for the union. So West Virginia was part of the union. So I don't, I don't accept that one either. Sorry. Thanks, Scott. Very good. We'll, <laughs> we'll end on that discordant
1: <laughs> note and we, we, we shall... Um, we have no intention of following up that argument.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, continued. Uh, in, indeed, uh, uh, the Continental Congress, I always thought it was a bit sad. I read somewhere that uh, in their final session... Uh, they adjourned uh, Cine Day so to, to, for another day. For another day. Yeah, we've been waiting 200-something years for that, for that uh, re, reconvening of the Continental Congress. But, um, Renee, you have something much more modern for us, in fact, uh, a very uh, modern book about the insanity of the times.
2: Yeah, so um, you may know that I actually have a passion for horror and I've had a passion for (laughs) things that scare the living uh, hell out of you for most of my life. I have many stories of um, getting in lots of trouble at camp by reading ghost stories to other eight-year-old girls who weren't quite ready for them. But probably the scariest book that I have read this year or maybe in the last decade has got to be Douglas Murray's The Madness of Crowds. just because it articulates the problem of the culture wars we are in, the identity politics games that we are playing and how inherently dangerous they are. Um, and there is a little part at the back where he talks about um, solutions, but it's very short and it's, it's a little bit disheartening. But I think the main point of this, and Douglas Murray has a, a real knack for doing this, is articulating things that everyone is thinking deep down but because of cultural norms or uh, these cultural problems that we are in, no one's actually saying and he manages to articulate them so perfectly and in a way that will, I hope, begin a discussion. So this is On the Way to Being a Bestseller, just like the strange death death of Europe before it. Um, it's called The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity. But I have a feeling they changed the undertitle to make it a little bit less controversial on the front, because the chapters are actually split into gay, women, race, and trans, which are all like uh, you know, talking about trigger these- words. Talking about these things feels like you're walking across a field of landmines. Um, But really what he's talking about is this new kind of form of um, brute politics, which I I found really interesting Um, and something that I really identified with of um, are these new identities that we're kind of building a new ethics around. um, So are they a new way of forming politics? So is gay inherently political? is being a woman, inherently political. Um, so you see a lot of this on campus and a lot of this with young people I deal with. You're gay, but because you don't believe the right things, you're not really gay. Or you're a woman, but you don't believe the right things, so you're not a really woman. Really a woman. And, he, and he goes through examples such as Peter Thiel, um, who was a Silicon Valley millionaire, um, very much celebrated before this as a, a successful gay man, and he came out in support of Donald Trump and the Republicans, and there was an article afterwards that um, in a very popular gay magazine is, he may be attracted to other men, but he's definitely not gay anymore because gay is more than being attracted to other men.
1: Can't be a gay Republican.
2: And, you know, you're seeing new forms of this with... um,
1: Despite the log cabin Republicans movement, which has been around for a long time. Yeah, exactly.
2: And he also talks about um, the only people that he sees that are not worried about these new cultural problems and these new forms of identity politics are those that are um, self-employed. So those who don't have to enter workforces or people like him who are writers... And he says that it is the responsibility of those who do not have a, you know, a hierarchy above them, they don't have a job to lose, to be voicing these issues because if we don't speak about them and we can't speak about them, the only step after you know, no discussion is violence. So that's the real so, worrying thing So issue.
1: how does he think this came about? So I mean, what, what, what has changed in the last couple of years or last decade or so to, to make this into such a significant political movement?
2: Well, it's a combination of things he kind of talks about. So these ideas have been bubbling around for a very long time. They were just at the very edges of liberal arts colleges and they were forming but everyone didn't pay attention to them. But then they started working their way into the corporate field and also into society more broadly. And that's because they are quite attractive. if To a generation of young people who feel like... They're never going to be able to get to buy a house. Um, they're never going to be able to do certain things that they think they view that were easier for their parents. I've got a system that will create, get rid of all inequality, get all, rid of all bigotry, and will give you meaning. It's kind of what, along the lines of what Jordan Peterson is talking about is young people are seeking meaning in life and they're going to these extreme ends of kind of yeah, brute force identity politics and the problem is that this isn't really going to give them meaning and it may be a funny thing to say in in the building of the IPA but to seek the meaning in your life from politics is probably not the best direction to go for a happy <laughs> life it's it's probably not um and
0: yes politics should be proceed from virtue not the other way around
2: yeah so it's it's been building up for a while and also it's the reason the problem is getting worse and worse is because people aren't discussing them, is that a lot of our society is getting built around lies um, and lies that when someone comes up and questions these lies and um, in- immediately kind of gets shut down. You see the case of James Damore when he came out with Google and said, hey, maybe some women are uh, interested in some fields and some men are more interested in other fields and deep down... Everyone in society kind of knows it to be true. But this identity politics nonsense is kind of built on the concept that men and women are the same. So anyone who points out that lie must be silenced immediately and you're seeing this again and again and again.
0: One of, one of the questions I have is... Um, so, Renee, this is, uh, these are discussions you're having all the time um, uh, against you know, the more extreme wings of identity politics but also just with young people grappling with these ideas... He's walking across a minefield, as you say, but he does it also, uh, he's himself gay, and but it's also a very calm and measured and methodical, it is an exercise in journalism, like there's a lot of case studies there which he is basically laying out this story and you draw your own conclusion. And some of them, of course, are truly, truly shocking stories of identity politics gone wrong, um, you know, failed exercises in transgender surgery then ultimately leading to euthanasia. I mean, it was, was is perhaps the, the worst of the lot in the story. But I guess the question is, is there something in that in that very calm manner that he has, which perhaps in itself is a way forward to engaging on these issues? Is it is it
2: helpful? I think so. And I think that's what he's trying to achieve with this book. Um, if you see him interviewed about the book he talks about, I have uh, endless faith in the power of conversation. Um, mm. I think and i have endless faith in the fact that bad ideas will eventually be destroyed by good ideas and right now the problem in the west is that we've kind of become bad at talking
0: yeah so so when you said at the at the start and i agree with you there's nothing very little explicit in the book about what can we do about it but maybe it's his style and manner is just as important as as any sort of uh, techniques or whatever that is
2: and also the only way we can move forward and kind of solve these issues is by understanding the problem in full. And he kind of fully articulates the dangerous nature of of these concepts and where they can lead. So we came to this point um, after Martin Luther King about we will not judge people on the colour of their skin but on the content of their character. And and that seemed to be a great way to build society. And now it seems we're going back again. He keeps talking about um, all these kind of issues. They kind of reach a point where it's looking like um, it's, everything's getting better and everything's looking better and somehow they just go off the rails. It's not to say that we reached a point of no racism. That's not really possible. But the concept that now colour blindness is considered racism by some, uh, some academics is just crazy. Colour blindness is what we, we should be looking at, not being obsessed with race. And that's what we're coming back to is being with, uh, obsessed with race and that's a really, really dangerous path
1: there seems to be an attitude on both left and right um in some parts which is that um we are unable to convince uh, fellow people, so we have to either browbeat them or we have to um, act extra legally, we have to um, uh, shame, we have to um, silence that sort of thing. Um, which I just think is, and, and this is clearly Douglas Murray's view as well, just fundamentally mistaken because in a democracy, or even actually in really any um, political system, there is no alternative but to convince other people that, you know, you've got a correct vision of the world. And the only way to convince people, there's no point convincing people who already agree. The only way to convince people is to convince someone who didn't agree before you spoke to them. Um, and I think one of the worrying things that's it's really clear on the left and and Douglas Murray spells it out well, but it's also on the right that we've decided we plural have decided that um, convincing people is pointless now. Now we need action. We need trolling. We need shouting down. We need we need something else. But there's just no. I, I just don't see any alternative. Any alternative to, um, uh, to 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 rational argumentation as bourgeois as that may sound.
2: And I, I actually get asked a lot of the time because I'm, I'm working on campus and working with young people on campus, and we get. Um, You know, submitted to some very horrific tactics sometimes from the other side, and I get asked, "Oh, why don't you fight back the same way?" Because doesn't that make me just as bad as them? And I don't want to do that. It's also not not convincing. You're
1: you're not convincing, and it's not about convincing the other side. It's not about convincing the ideologues of the other side. It's about convincing the people who aren't sure who are watching you. And this is what we always say um, when you think about what, what is your role as a public intellectual. Um, and you're in the middle of a debate, it's got nothing to do with convincing the other person who you're debating. It's convincing the people who might be listening and trying to figure out which has the more appealing arguments or um, that person at the margin who's almost on your side but will be repulsed if it doesn't look like you can defend your claims in a way that they could do similarly.
2: I actually think this book, in terms of convincing, is... An excellent present, and I'm actually giving it. <laughs> I'm giving it to my father, to people who were old school left, who are going, who are thinking right now, what's going on, especially you know white male um, people who grew up in the '70s and '60s have always had very progressive views, finally finding, finding themselves as being called oppressors when they've never really done anything like that or just this old school version of left wing politics that did believe that it's content of character and that we should judge people as individuals and they're going what's going wrong with the left right now yeah this this is what's going with the left right wrong with oh, the left cl- right now to clarify does your is father it? know that he's getting that for christmas
0: he does now. He you just, you've just announced. I oh, don't yeah, think
2: cool. I. I, I you know. I. You know, I love the podcast, but I don't think that my left-wing father <laughs> listens <laughs> to <laughs> the IPA podcast. You'll uh, find. He'll find <laughs> it under his tree. Uh, I feel like
0: we're very. <laughs> no, this. This <laughs> is yeah. about recommending summer reading, so that's that's a terrific that's um, recommendation there, Douglas. Murray's the uh, madness of crowds. Um, another great segment. Thank you, Zach Gorman. Thanks. Thank you, Renee Gorman. Thank you. And there's two more terrific books to be discussed right now, and we have two wonderful people to tell us all about them. On my right, I have Gideon Rosner, our Director of Policy. G'day, Scott. And on my left, Dan Wild, Director of Research. G'day.
4: First time I've ever been on your left, I reckon. <laughs> 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 but first yeah, yeah, I've been on yeah, anybody's first left. First and only.
0: First and only. No, no, <laughs> great to have you two back in the studio. Gideon got here first, so he, he got that seat. Dan's a bit upset, as you can tell. Um, I like this seat. This is where I usually <laughs> sit on this podcast. I'm sort of perched I, here. We Have we had you two together I I don't think so. Sure. No, no, it's been a big year. So yeah. um, no, it's taken our summer summer special to, to get us to this point. And what book do you have for us, Kitty? So
5: today I brought in uh, Corkscrewed by Rowan Dean. Now Rowan Dean, you. Uh, most of our listeners would know, that is uh, a giant of the Australian right, host of Outsiders, editor of The Spectator magazine, uh, raconteur, all-round good bloke. Financial um, review columnist as well. Financial review columnist as well, correct. Um, So he wrote this book and I thought I'd bring it in because this is summer reading edition and this is something a little bit lighter, a little bit, uh, you know, that lends itself more to a summer read. I took it with me... About a year ago, on a flight to London, fittingly enough, and I laughed so hard on the plane I actually disturbed some of the other passengers. <laughs> it was it was a a page turner. Um, what it's about is it's about a, a semi autobiographical book about Rowan D about an advertising executive and his uh, creative partner. <laughs> Sorry, it, a generic uh, uh, no ad no an executive <laughs> and his um, offsider, or a, another ad exec in that creative team in the 1980s. And basically, the novel consists of these two blokes doing a bit of work in the morning, finding a client who'd pay for a long lunch and going out and you know having said lunch and then hilarity ensues. So it's it sort of did to the novel what Seinfeld did for the sitcom. There are no <laughs> hokeyed um, epiphanies. There's no clichéd revelations. There's no attempt to find meaning where it, where it doesn't exist. It really is a wall-to-wall uh, story of... Uh, a a to War book of you know funny drinking stories and and funny uh, stories about the the craziness that was the eighties. But the political subtext of it is that it was set obviously in nineteen eighties Britain. And throughout the novel, the ethic of that era comes through. I mean, it was it, it sort of sort of shows how England was waking up after the winter of discontent, about the time of exuberance and material abundance and the joy of being and and a a time which was actually free of political correctness as well. And it showed the – you know, an advertising executive, and advertising agency is a great setting because it shows the the intersection of capitalism and creativity that, that era ushered in. So uh, not overtly political, but for those of us who are fans of Thatcher and that, and that era, uh, it makes for a very, very good read as well as being very amusing and very well written.
1: So that's the, the – uh, so your takeaway from the book is – the um, it's sort of that political context, that that rise of um, uh, prosperity
5: mm. and and the energy that that brings, the energy, and again, and the cre- creative energy as well. I mean, this is the great myth, I suppose, that of the starving artist, of of the this mutual exclusivity of material abundance and uh, you know creativity, of fulfilment of um, uh, you know high meaning, intellectual pursuits, and so on. You know, one, it's its all, all sort of the idea of the Maslow hierarchy of needs and what that time of material comfort in Thatcher's Britain wrought was, yeah, a time of great energy and, and and fun as well. I mean, this is the thing about... It's its refreshing to read at the tail end of what I think will be remembered as a terrible decade, the 2010s, because everything is so serious and joyless and, and it comes with a health warning and everything else. This is a fictionalised or a fictitious version of... Rowan Dean's sort of ethic, which is you know this this blend of hedonism and conservatism, which obviously appeals to me personally very much.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's so much to reflect on in that Britain, and and you're right, it had come off the '70s, which had been that that dreadful decade, and so much of the resentment against against Thatcher uh, and that sort of capitalistic uh, exuberance that you're you're describing. It's like, oh, look at the equality. Uh, sorry, look at the inequality. Look at these yuppies with their Uh, expensive suits you Mm. know getting hammered at lunchtime and all you know the the point was they were creating this this opposition in britain so Mm. in you hadn't seen that in the 70s because no one had any money yeah correct and so if you were sitting in 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 uh in manchester or liverpool circa 1985 you probably would have looked at you know these guys in london and 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 thought well damn damn them Mm. but the point was this was just the first stirrings of something that that then spread and uh, yeah. and and created a, a period of growth that led right up until the global financial crisis.
5: But the, the characters in here aren't uh, privileged. They're not part of any sort of establishment or, or hierarchy and everything else. I mean, they were just two people who made money and lived well on their creative wits and on their talents. I mean, isn't that not the the kind of society that everybody can get on board with? It, it, it Again, it dispels this myth of Thatcher England being this Dickensian you know, scary, corporatist place. Uh, you know, it, 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 it was actually, uh, you know, a pretty good place to live for everybody, now, as far course. as I'm aware.
4: Rowan is the um, editor of the Spectator Australia mm. and host of Outsiders. Mm. Um, do you see much of, you know, he's got a fairly, I guess, unique um, brand and style. Yep. And he's also F- F- a regular. <laughs> That's right. And he's also on a Bolt Report. Every Wednesday he has his Culture Wars segment. Yep. Um, do you see much of that, Uh, his persona today as it is, um, does it have its Mm. traces in that book? Can you sort of trace it through a little bit and see where he's come to today?
5: Well, obviously Rowan's a great humorist and you can see that in his monologues for Outsiders and for his spin review columns and everything else. And and as I said, the the book was very, very funny and, uh, you know, showcased his ability to you know, tell a story and tell a funny story and everything else. But beyond that, yeah, it, it was and, – and one of the few political elements of the book that was expressed was Rowan's – or the main character's run-ins <laughs> with the um, – the, No connection to Rowan uh, at It's yeah. a, a work of fiction, <laughs> for, for, for legal purposes <laughs> and nothing else. But the run-ins with the government censors. And uh, there was there was one memorable one uh, – and, and again, listening to him – Talking about those government censors and what they did to his ads was a bit like listening to Ron uh, on the Culture war segment talking about you know big government and the and the um, woke elite telling us what we can and can't put in television programs and everything else. And there's one government agency with a acronym, ICTA, and I don't forget what it st- stands for in real life, but the the characters in his book. Used to call them "it's those seas again," <laughs> 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 which uh,
1: which had Rowan all over it. One of the things that you brought out there is the um, relationship between commerce and art, mm. and um, or, or commerce of beauty, or something like that. And it and it strikes me that um, the underappreciated joy of capitalism, mm. um, and the idea that advertising and large. Large quantities of advertising on billboards in neon makes some centres, city centres, actually quite beautiful in a way that you don't get from uh, what you would view as a more traditional beauty, uh, city of beauty like something like Paris. So yeah. I, I, I I I find a strong appeal to that. Corporate advertising and the aesthetic value that it has. Mm. Um, you, you think about how amazing Tokyo is not yeah. not a mm. Times Square, not describe well. Ta- Times Square is disgusting for other reasons. <laughs> um, uh, never go to Times Square. Piccadilly Circus. Um, uh, Piccadilly Circus is a much better example. Um, uh, but but just thinking of the center of Tokyo and there's a fundamental beauty to it that is deeply underappreciated because so many of the people in our culture who talk about beauty. ...of a non-capitalist... Yeah, or Hong Kong is another
5: example. That's the the ultimate example. example. That is one of the most free... Well, the most free marketplace on the face of planet Earth. But, yeah, it's this debate... ...this myth that art has to be fringe... ...or at least not commercially successful to be art. But that is the opposite of what art should be. It should be accessible. It should be... You know, new art forms are driven by the demand of... ...not the money to to live off everybody else's money down in Ultimo... ...but... um, you know, real artists trying to at least achieve some sort of critical it, mass it, of... It, it should speak to someone.
1: Yeah. And, and the way that we figure out whether art speaks to someone is ask, do people want to go and see Correct. it? Correct. Do they want to pay for it? Do they want to enjoy it? Not mm. um, does a does a bureaucracy value it for whatever Correct. reason. The other thing, though, that you brought up, and and this is the um, really interesting, the conservatism and hedonism. Um, uh, which is a really interesting combination. Um, uh, Dan, uh, w- what's your uh, – ha- how do you view the relationship between conservative and hedonism?
5: Look, I'll, I'll set it up. You knock it down. Is, you mean oh. is, is, it, is it okay to <laughs> knock off at lunchtime <laughs> and, is it and okay? go, to the, go to the pub? No, well, there, there, absolutely there not. A, I've never done that and I would never do that. No, so, no of course uh, you wouldn't. For the no. importance of doubt, no. No, but it's an interesting tension.
4: It is. Um, it's not immediately apparent to me what the connection is. <laughs> um, they, they're usually probably juxtaposed against one another. Um, but it does get to, a, I think, a broader interesting point, which is um, what is sort of the basis of, of conservatism. Mm. Um, and you've got you know 12 rules for life um, there, which would probably um, tend to try and steer people away from conservatism um, the, the latter and toward the former, but um, what was it that you had in mind? Was the sort of the connection? Oh,
5: nothing, nothing really in terms of a uh, a connection. Save just that, two things you like. It's joy. It's a.
4: It's a. These are a
5: few of my favourite things, moment. But um, oh. no, I, I think. But it and, does, and work can be a joy. It, it goes to something. Well, work can be a joy. Yeah, and that creative fulfilment could be a joy. Uh, making money can be a joy. Um, but also, it's something I talk about with Bushy quite a bit, which is you know, Bushy. ...reckons he wants to write a book one day on the case for the old vices... on ...of the vices that, you know, have survived the test of time, you know... Um, uh, Drunkenism. Dr- dr- well, drinking, for example, as opposed to some of the other, you know... ...mind-altering substances you see these days. I mean, there's something in that. I mean, this was a... Uh, you know, I don't want to give the book away too much... ...but there wasn't anything worse than a bottle of white wine... ...or two or three at lunch. Um, this was... Uh, It was sort of... Old-fashioned excess. Yeah, and and excess in a way that we don't have these days. I mean, you couldn't get away with writing about long lunches and everything else these days. I mean, you... you, you, The new Puritanism. The new Puritanism. It would would crack down
1: on you. Because of millennials, they destroyed the long lunch.
5: Yep, that's correct. (laughs) Sorry (laughs) about that.
0: They they did. Yes, that's one of the many things we're annoyed at them for. (laughs) But anyway... And uh, thank you, Gideon. And Dan Wild, uh, you have a book uh, The Rise of Victimhood Culture. Tell us about that.
4: I do, thanks, Scott. Yeah, it's called The Rise of Victimhood Culture by Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, uh, two academics. Um, Basically the book uh, tries to chart out um, what is happening with victimhood culture. We hear a lot about what it is. They describe um, where it has come from and what preceded it. Their basic argument is there's three um, types of culture in a general sense. There's um, honor culture, dignity culture, and now we have victimhood culture. So honor culture is around, um, you know, wanting to preserve your name, preserve your honor, and that can be sometimes a bad thing. It, the example they give is of dueling um, mm. back in the Wild West type of thing, where people would duel if there was a someone had disrespected them or their wife or something like that. There's an
1: efficiency element to that, I feel. There like.
4: can yeah. be. There can be. I don't, um, I don't mind it. You don't mind it, yeah, that. yeah. Um, Bring back dueling. Then there is the. Um, Dignity culture, which is sort of the Victorian era, stiff upper lip, turn the other cheek, um, just get on with it, sticks and stones will break my bones type attitude. Um, And now that's given way to victimhood um, culture where basically your uh, sense of morality or moral superiority is predicated on your status as a victim. And the challenge that we have um, in order to get that status is to become uh, the biggest victim possible, which gives rise to things like intersectionality where... Um, that is essentially victim upon victim upon mm. victim. and the more of these categories you have, you know uh, uh, your your racial background, your religion, your gender, your disability status, and so forth, the more those compound one another, the bigger the victim you are, mm. and therefore the more um, uh, receptive you ought to be of moral considerations uh, of of everybody else. So the authors see this as a very troubling. Um, a phenomenon and they're not the first to, to raise that, it's really about the fragility that comes with being seen as a victim as opposed to say wanting to preserve your dignity and they argue that a lot of the, the conflict that we have in our society is because of the juxtaposition of say victimhood culture uh, against say those who believe in dignity culture as an example, so that's a sort of a high-level overview of where the book uh, comes from. It's an
5: interesting take on dignity culture because my and I haven't read the book, but my understanding was the difference between dignity and victimhood culture was was is seen on the anti-racist movements, for example, of the '60s and so on versus today. I mean, the civil rights movement was about liberating uh, black people from the indignity of separate treatment and of segregation and extending to them the dignity of equality of being of. Mm. Uh, fully you know having the same rights as everybody else whereas today that's morphed into a victimhood culture something that I- I- is based on as you said competing yeah. narratives of victimhood and everything else did that shine through in the in the book or it is does that to a an fair ex- assessment
4: yeah it does to an extent that's a very good comment because i think you know, to take that a little bit further what i'd say is um, where you could argue dignity culture is unifying you could argue that victimhood culture is mm. um, is is a path to separatism and we see that in australia with um, calls for um, you know, indigenous-only body, mm. which is in a constitution which is essentially predicated on victimhood. Well, rather than having the dignity of everyone being equal, is the victimhood status of people being different based on their race. I think that's a pretty, pretty astute observation. There, there's mm.
1: another way to add to that, that a dignity culture is – you can have a dignity culture of all have equal dignity it's very hard if you've got a status race of victimhood mm, because mm. victimhood requires some people to be victims and others not to be or others to be oppressors or at least neutral. But so so is it – do you think it's self-defeating in that sense that if you've got a status race towards the, you know, in, infinite intersectionality? Well, if I could just does, add yeah. that
5: when, we, when uh, we made our video for Race Has No Place with Jacinta Price, that was just one of the points that she made. The The – the voice to parliament is a concession that Indigenous people were for, will forever be separate and therefore forever be disadvantaged. Uh, that is the static victimhood uh, mentality as opposed to the extending dignity. Anyway, mm. sorry.
4: Yeah, and that, that's right. And, and your comment about what was the infinite... So uh, you've got infinite yeah, you intersectionalities, that's right. and which rolls infinite, off the tongue. And infinite sectionalities is a good way. And I know I've said it in Jordan Peterson before, but he actually hit the nail on <laughs> the hit as well, which is the logical end point is you get to liberalism, yeah. which is actually the individual. So if mm. you keep tranching and entranching, and eventually you get to everybody has their own unique set of disadvantages or uh, if you want to look at it that way, disadvantages or ways in which they could said to have been a victim, they had you know bad parents, they were brought up in a bad neighbourhood, they were sick, when they were I mean, how many mm. ways do you want to transcribe? So you end up getting to the fact that we all have our own individual circumstances, and that gets you back to the kind of dignity culture. But but what, that's what the, the
1: famous On Rand line, which is that the smallest minority is the individual.
0: Absolutely. Mm. But what where where this book is very good, and uh, I was impressed with it too, and and commissioned a review by the um, British author Tiffany Jenkins. Uh, in the IPA review, is they're sociologists, and and we've used the word status a couple of times, and 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 this is what it really unlocked for me is explaining why have we gone down this road, and what is the purchase of victimhood culture, and and part of it is a dignity culture, as as, as we've been saying, is about equal rights. Now, humans are status seeking individuals, uh, uh, you know, are status seeking. You know, we li- we live in stratified groups Jordan Peterson again you know right right back to lobsters and and bonobos and whatever so it's just part of our nature that we can't escape and so the curious thing about victimhood culture is if you didn't understand this you might say why would why would you identify yourself as a victim and, and put yourself at the bottom you might be at the bottom formally by saying everyone's oppressing me but what you're doing is you're raising your status You've changed the culture in which the most important person is the one who is most depressed. Mm. So by putting up your hand and saying, "I'm oppressed and I'm oppressed more than you, mm. you might also be in a minority by in terms of skin color, but i am I am also trans or I am also something else. And that's what inter- intersectionality is about. It's a battle for status credits, and mm. that's and that partly explains, uh, the viciousness of some of the politics that you see there, and 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 we're also in this series uh, summer reading series talking about Douglas Murray, and and what's going on inside those intersectional communities. So I think having this sociological perspective in the book that you're recommending, Dan, is so good because it is about status and it brings. Bring, actually brings out the worst in humans because it's about not being satisfied with being equal.
4: And it also, I mean, that's a very astute observation and very well put. And it also obliterates any possibility of empathy. Mm. You, know, I can't, you know, I can't speak on behalf of you or for you um, if I'm not from the same group as you. And obviously that completely undermines the basis of a representative democracy, which is based <laughs> on, you know, geographical representation and having mm. a member of parliament that's there to represent that geographic base regardless of what their... Uh, individual differences would be, which is why it's such a threat. Um, I just want to build on what you said, and also you helpfully posted um, this on our internal messaging board, uh, which was a link to a conversation between John Anderson uh, in his conversation series and um, uh, Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs. And um, he's, of course, a very prominent uh, rabbi, writer, thinker, prolific writer. And um, one of the points that he made in that um, conversation, which I'd recommend everyone. Um, have a listen to is he differentiated between um, shame culture and guilt culture, um, and he said shame culture is what you see in societies like Japan, where it's shame and honor, and guilt culture is sort of a Judeo-Christian um, conception, and so he was arguing basically in the West we've moved from a guilt to a shame culture. The problem with that is uh, Sachs argues that in a guilt culture there's forgiveness, mm. and so this is the this is the difference between the sinner and the sin. You can differentiate. Uh, between you know, someone and what they've said, and so therefore you can forgive them and they can be reintegrated into society um, or they can be fully accepted for what they once were. Uh, whereas in a shame society, there's really no coming back. Um, if you've um, transgressed some politically correct view and you get shamed on social media, you lose your job and many other bad things can happen to you. And we've seen many occasions people will apologise even. They go, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean that. I didn't, you know, I didn't know this was the wrong thing to say doesn't matter. No, right. No. And so Because no the rules have changed. There's no redemption. And that's, yeah. the, that's the key point that, that Sachs makes, which is a good addendum, I think, to this book.
0: It does help you understand a lot of the things that are going on, doesn't it?
4: It does. Yeah, yeah, it does. One of the criticisms I have with the book is that it doesn't really give us a path forward. Mm. It's it's a very astute observation of what's happening, but I want to know what can we, we can do about it. Um,
1: Apart from accelerate the infinite intersectionalities. <laughs> yes, but I, I wonder... I wonder Whether that's a great strategy yeah, I in a medium that, term. That's right. I, but, I think um, I, I'd like to pick up something which has always fascinated me about the victimhood, but the combination of victimhood and um, the ways that particularly universities and educational institutions have tried to institute... Um, solutions to that or so so this is the trigger warning stuff the safe spaces because i think once you identify someone as a victimhood a victim of some trauma for being who they are then we start i mean the way that many universities particularly in the united states have then approached it well then we've got to treat you like a a trauma victim Mm. um we have to have these trigger warnings we have to have these safe spaces um and it's incredibly counterproductive to do it that way, mm. um in part because um it, it's just bad psychology um uh, treating some, protecting someone against triggers is not the uniform recommendation for all people who have um, uh, suffered actual trauma let alone identity trauma um, or too many microaggressions all mm-hmm. their lives but it's also a rejection of the idea that you can grow so you can something can happen to you and you can grow from it this is sort of a a, a reverse mirror image of your your um, forgiveness point that if you suffer something you may have suffered because of um you know there were there were incidents where people um uh, were racist to you or sexist to you or what have you um a lot of psychologists talk about the fact that you need to be able to grow through that and become a better person for having dealt with challenges mm-hmm. and that's not ever to wish those challenges on anyone but it's a way of thinking about the way we cope um that a lot of um, uh, cognitive behavioural therapists will say this is how you should sort of start restructuring your thinking. But if we if we frame everything as in, well, this is a victimhood story, then ultimately we are mm. always fundamentally victims. So we are yeah. always fundamentally suffering from. We are always re-raising past traumas think, without ever tackling. It.
5: I think one of the worst things about the victimhood phenomenon is um, the rise of <clears throat> right-wing victimhood. Mm. Uh, culture and you see that in things like for example the men's rights uh, movement and you see it in memes like well you think men have it easy well did you know the majority of suicide cases are men do you know the majority of people dying of war men all valid points but i think don't think it's particularly productive for the right to be trying to out victimhood the left i mean they're masters at it and at the end of the day all, all you get is both sides of the debate, or the whole ideological spectrum, engaging in the same pointless contest. But n-
1: narratives of suffering have become a really powerful part of just day-to-day politics. Yeah. Mm. Now, on mm. both left and right, I mean, uh, I, I I think I I
0: agree with you. This so is a, lo- the epi- a random example, but the one of the uh, when Julie Gillard was casting about for something, you know, she she had nothing to lean on. And she decided it was the fact that her ethnic background was Welsh, <laughs> growing up in Adelaide. Oh, there's long lot like of oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Welsh yeah, have that, that, had a terrible time uh, in Australia. Yeah, ever I mean.
5: since the 13th century. I mean, what, you know
0: what, Really, you know, and and sort of it's almost to her credit. I think she was embarrassed to do it, but she had to construct this this
1: narrative. But is there is there a politics after this? So it just strikes me that both left and right left left say that um, we are suffering because of your speech. The right say we are being censored because of your preferences. Um, We all seem to have adopted the, um, you know, our side gets it worse now. Mm. Um, And maybe that's just an acquiescence on all sides of politics and 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 center right center left far right far left is that an acquiescence
5: that we've decided yeah well we're in a victimhood culture let's play on those terms yeah but it's transient i'm more optimistic i think these things come and go i mean this is this, this is a fad this is an intellectual fad that's only been around you know what 10 15 odd years hmm. i mean there was political correctness in the 90s there were you know issues in the 2000s but really the, the 2010s i keep going i'm fascinated by decades and, and everything else and i Again, the 2010s will be looked at, back on as, as the time when all this stuff was just a fever pitch, but it, it doesn't last. I and, mean, and, and, and there's a critical mass of people who are seeing through it. Too.
0: Well, and of, and, of course, we do draw our, our heroes from those who perhaps have had the most opportunity um, uh, to embrace it but refuse to do so, like the just enterprises of the mm. world and, uh, and many, many other examples. You could, you could raise of, of people who've just said, no, I'm not going there. Mm. And, well, the entire uh, walk-away
5: movement. What's the walk away? The walk away from, oh, from the, the, the Democratic Party people, chiefly people of colour who've left the Democratic yeah, Party sure, uh, sure. because, uh, and, and this comes through in, I mean, the, the Kanye West rap I reviewed for the IPR review a few editions yep. ago he made, he includes a line, you know, you'd think we'd never made it off the plantation. I mean, the, 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 the awareness that this victimhood mentality is, is counterproductive, I think that, that it seems to be gaining currency.
0: A true message of hope there. Thank you we're for coming in. the IPO. <laughs> we are indeed. Thank you for coming in and talking about your book, Corkscrewed by Rowan Dean. My Gideon, pleasure. And Dan, thanks for coming in and telling us about the rise of victimhood culture. Great, thank you. We've come to that part of the summer reading podcast of Looking Forward, where Berg and I actually get to talk about the books that we're reading and that we're <laughs> recommending for you to read over this long hot break. I'm gonna start off. I have a terrific book, which I'm holding up at the moment. It's called Escape from Rome, The Failure of Empire and the Road to Prosperity by Walter Scheidel. Uh, It's a work of world history uh, and it is part of the Princeton Economic History of the Western World series. And so we thought we'd better bring back an an actual historian to help us talk about it. Zach Gorman, thank you.
1: Just to check the dates. That's really what we're (laughs) hoping for here. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Always get mixed up between the Romans and the Greeks, you know. (laughs) You might be able to help with that. No, thanks, Zach. Um, This is a book I'm tremendously excited about, we here at the ipa of course have a uh, foundations of western civilization program and uh, you know the general outline of that thesis is uh, a story of you know Jer- jerusalem of uh, athens rome jerusalem uh, the foundations of the of the culture we inherited this is a work of economic history and its fundamental thesis is that we, you know, everyone knows the story of the fall of Rome and, you know, why did it fall? Was it was it the invading Germans? Was it decadence from within? Was it, you know, problems of control or lack of tax revenue or whatever? The point this guy's is making is that the most interesting thing about the Roman Empire, it's not that it, it fell. It's that it never reformed. Hmm. So he's doing a world comparison of the different empires, uh, particularly in the, you know, the great... Uh, landmass, Eurasian landmass uh, that we've seen. So we're comparing it, um, in particular, to the uh, uh, to the Middle East and to China. And if you look at other parts of the world, um, so I'll, I'll just talk about China for a moment. What you saw is, like Rome, there was sort of a parallel period of development, a, a, a gradual uh, consolidation into these great empires: Rome in the West and and China. Uh, in the east and then Rome fell but never reformed and whereas every time that China broke up it did eventually reform they might have a warring states period it might split into two but then it would always come back together and for something like 80% of Chinese history it's always been a unitary state in Rome it was a unitary state up until the 6th century and then it fell and this is the other part of what he's saying is and isn't that a great thing Hmm. because if Rome had of state a unitary empire governing the Mediterranean, governing um, what's now Europe uh, or some subset thereof, what you have in a unitary state is, is stultification, a lack of dynamism. The best thing that happened is the opening up for the possibility of a, of a polycentric world of, of multiple states competing with each other. And um, so what this is really doing Typically in history, uh, and if you're telling the story of Western civilization, you talk about the great divergence really being, you know, from the uh, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the beginnings of capital, the unleashing of capitalist development, the Industrial Revolution, and away we go and here we are and isn't that a good thing? He's saying that's actually the second great divergence because the first great divergence was when the Roman Empire fell and Europe resisted all attempts at reunification, whether it be under Charlemagne, um, or, or the or the Turks or or the Mongols or whoever was trying to reunify uni- Europe, they all failed, and uh, that's what set it up for the second great divergence and all of the great things that we enjoy today.
1: It, it sounds fundamentally like um, this is a book that's not tackling why did Rome fail to. F- Um, rebuild but in fact it's tackling the great question in social science the great question in social science is why are some countries rich and other countries aren't and if you tackle that as a historian or an economic historian you look at that that initial great divergence that great divergence that said that that meant that while um, countries like China Britain much of the Middle East were of similar GDP or economic development um, around say the thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth centuries. By the eighteenth and nineteenth century, Britain and Western and Northern Europe had just blown out—just extraordinary jump. And what has always struck me about that story is um, uh, usually usually people describe it as a sort of hockey stick graph. So the the um, uh, it, it, Income is flat globally, um, everywhere, until say yeah, the seventeenth yeah. century. I mean, century.
0: He, he covers some of that literature. I mean, the long, the long-term global growth rate seemed to be about one percent of GDP. Yeah. forever. You know, be it in China or Rome or wherever. I until mean,
1: until suddenly it jumps. But what's interesting is that there was that's not quite the the correct picture anymore because there was actually a little bit of a spike around. Rome as well. So um, there was no way that it got anywhere near what we sort of saw in the 18th, 19th centuries. But there was a spike in growth. So there's an argument, and I wonder whether he he tackles this or can tackle this, that um, Rome was actually an incredibly prosperous place to be. Um, and a surprisingly prosperous place if you are only expecting 1% growth or, or 0.1% growth.
0: No, no, he, w- he, wouldn't, he wouldn't be part of that school of thought because what he's saying is it's still this um, very flat level of growth. So Rome was probably uh, – the Rome, uh, late Roman Republic, early Roman Empire was probably a bit richer than China but in a sense it's just because they started a little bit earlier – um, if, you, if you take that time factor out. And the sources of wealth in both cases uh, were the basic things. It was about establishing peace over a geographic area. You build some roads... You decency decent system. Infrastructure spending. Yeah, a bit of infrastructure. You know, the aqueducts. You do the aqueducts. Uh, you enable trade. You enable trade to take place without bandits stealing all your stuff. And
1: as Josh Bridenberg thinks what the next budget's going to look like, <laughs> just <laughs> to...
0: That's right. Um, but that was that was really the cap on sources of growth and in, in the, the Roman Empire. And what he points out, all of the things which set us up for the second great divergence came later. Uh, institutions like universities, uh, institutions like um, uh, civil law, access to courts, um, Magna Carta, science. I mean, science had... had, There'd been a brief spurt of science in the Hellenistic period uh, under the the Ptolemaic Greeks, which was then killed off by the Romans. These these guys were not innovators. They didn't care anything about innovation at all. And, again, it was only when you were able to enable a, a polycentric world that innovations started coming out in in early modern Europe.
3: Well, I'm obviously a bit of a preacher for (laughs) decentralisation. but I think the Roman Empire has its place in the sense of um, just that there were, there weren't avenues for cross-pollination of ideas um, in the ancient world in the way that sort of the technological revolution, and even just having a common language across Europe with Latin and later French allowed for this cross-pollination of ideas and this greater evolution. So there's something to be said about um, spreading Western civilization in the first instance and then breaking it up into little pieces so we can all develop in our own ways and develop under um, new ideas. I was just reading James Bellock, and he was talking about the same thing and he talked about that one of the main arguments for the differential between europe and china that happened so late they were china was ahead of us with the printing press and all sorts of things but one of the main differences was what he calls the exit option so in the early 15th century in china you had the great age of exploration when they had these great ships of fleets going around africa and going um tremendous distances And then the imperial government turned off that idea Mm. and the explorers had nowhere else to go. At the same time in Europe, you had Christopher Columbus come with his idea of going to uh, hopefully India. Obviously, it wasn't India. But he came (laughs) up with the idea and he tried to shop it to the Portuguese. And when the Portuguese didn't want it, that's when he went to the next, um, when he went to Spain and got the Spanish to back it. So there was this exit option. Mm. There was always another polity that you could experiment on.
0: No, that, that, that's absolutely it. It's, it's polycentrism and and, um, and uh, the other thing he talks about which is relevant is that they – and it's a little bit of a – he says this could be a little bit of a just-so story. What was good about it was it was polycentric but there were some unifying things. So uh, from Portugal to Spain they were speaking, you know, different languages but different Romance languages and most of the people at court, um, uh, the – there would have been clerics at least um, uh, who all spoke Latin. So there was this dispersed series of polities but joined uh, at least by an educated class uh, who either spoke Latin or in later years, say, French or nowadays English um, as, as, a, as a, a common language. And, and, of course, the church was this sort of pan-European institution. So uh, there's that. there was that sort of sweet spot... And this is a bit uh, difficult for an historian to think about—is you know whether it's overdetermined, but a sweet spot of different countries, different polities, right down to the feudal level. This is where he's almost saying feudalism was a good thing, because you know the Holy Roman Empire was uh, neither Holy nor Roman nor an Empire—it was a series of dispersed German principalities and. Uh, you had that exit option, and, uh, but they, they were connected in some way via the church.
1: But that's the fundamental importance there of the church because the church is a polycentric, a level of polycentricity that's not just multiple states next to each other with their own protected domain. There's, a, um, there's another level of, quote, government that um, you can appeal to that um, mm. can uh, that, that whose responsibilities are not that neatly delineated um, uh, that that eventually comes into real strain with the Reformation but um, but at the first instance during the medieval period, you've got um, you can appeal to your king or you can appeal to, the Pope as well. So you've got multi-layer, yeah. multi-levels of polycentricity, um, which makes it really, really hard to build up a new state because, of course, the Pope doesn't want you to create large states that might compete, and that's a big part of the constitutional history of Europe, um, uh, the tension between um, uh, more powerful kings and emperors versus the Pope that they nominally share allegiance with. Um, uh, and then, And then to your point, which is about the um, – you need that shared language, of course. That, that religious construct gave everybody not just a shared language in Latin, but a shared um, uh, intellectual framework. So you can write your appeals to the state through a shared religious agreement that might have resonance in the Netherlands as much as it does in Italy, as much as it does in Sweden or or, or, or England.
3: Well, a good example of that cross-pollination of ideas is um, St Anselm. He's a classical example of how people in the medieval world were able to go from polity to polity and... They, their ideas spread, but also it, it's, a, it's a cross-pollination in the sense that they're, they're shaped by the new experiences they're experiencing as well as bringing their own ideas to new polities. So this was a monk who starts off in Italy, um, goes to the um, Abbot of Beck in Normandy, where which was one of the great centres of learning, and then becomes Abbot of Beck himself and then gets... Um, poached because of Normandy and its connection to England, gets poached to become Archbishop of, of Canterbury, and he sets up some of the foundational literature of ideas of individual freedom, and some uh, modern authors even sort of dubbed him a proto-libertarian, and he's gone through basically all of Europe by the time he's finished his career to, to become so famous. Yeah. Just,
1: a, just a real career climber, that guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, just but, in a, sort of no, but a, a proto-libertarian, and I think that, that, that <laughs> is the one disappointment of this book, um, Escape from Rome, because... Um, it is a work of economic history and I, the chapter where he says, so this is the relationship between church and state, so the institutional stuff is very aligned with what you, you were talking about there. Um, and then he says, he, he asks the question, so it's a series of sort of big questions, and like, is there anything in, in particular about Christianity um, that would make uh, what happened in the, the two great divergences different to say what happened in China or, or the Middle East in these areas, um, which didn't develop them, which, you know, maintained autarky and, and, and the, sort of the crushing weight of the center. And uh, he just says, well, no, not really. I mean, he's counterfactual is uh, the Orthodox churches Uh, byzantines greek orthodox russian orthodox he said well they were christian uh but they they were just under the thumb of the emperors and um and they stagnated and didn't have innovation and progress so it can't be anything in the actual substance of christianity and and i've got this you know head full of larry sidentop's uh, book the origins of individualism and i i just can't wear that
1: That, that's what's most fascinating to me about studying these sorts of things and in fact so the editor of this series looking at it is joel Mokyr. Machia. joel Mokyr's yep. um most recent book is actually trying to tackle that specifically um uh his most recent book from 2016 a culture of growth the origins of the modern economy trying to m- make that jump between there are clearly cultures or countries or communities that have ideas that are more sympathetic to innovation that are more sympathetic to institutional changes pro-liberty institutional changes and trying to tie the stuff that happens in the ideas realm to the stuff that happens in the um, in the material economy i think that's the great challenge that we have deirdre mccluskey does it very well john Mockier does it very well but it's the big game because if we talk about China is an example of a, a country that chose to withdraw from the world, made a deliberate decision to do so. Britain, which is a country that made deliberate ideological decisions to engage in ideas. that That's where we have to look.
3: Well, I think um, coming back to Christianity, the thing with sort of Byzantium and the Eastern being different from the Western, thats we sort of know that with religion that Um, religion can be interpreted in a whole number of ways and that it's not necessarily the central teachings, it's also about that interpretation. But that sort of is the brilliance of Christianity. So much of the best ideas from the Middle Ages came out of theological arguments. So the point was that it wasn't self-evident what the text on the page meant and you had to battle, but there was enough grains of truth in there. There's enough grains of particularly... The idea, and I always bring it back to John of Salisbury, this idea that the individual will be judged at the end of their life based on their actions. So it's the individual that's the centre of society and also that individual needs the freedom to make their own actions. Everything else comes out of that. I
1: actually share that analysis, but I I do worry that it's a bit of a just-so story. That like, yes, well, we got rich in Europe and Europe, they were Christians, so therefore it must have been the Christian ideas that made them rich. There's an element where... I think it has to be demonstrated better. That's that's um, and and sometimes when we discuss it we don't do the hard yards to do that demonstration. I think sit and top does actually yeah. a lot of that in and, the eventual
0: And, the and look, this this could be a whole podcast series in itself in the IPA review. Looking at
1: how long we've been going, it is a podcast series by itself. Okay. <laughs> I'll i <I'll> leave listeners
0: with two links. One is one is to Zach's piece on John of Salisbury from an IPA review about three editions ago and another in the current uh, edition. The um, uh, uh, what are we in? Autumn? Uh, uh, no, spring. Spring edition by Paul Monk, which is about that uh, explosion of science in the Hellenistic period. That spirit of inquiry, that brief uh, flowering, sort of the third and second centuries uh, BC, um, which wasn't seen again for 1,500 years. That was obviously in a in a time of, of pantheism. Uh, so maybe there's a there's a counterfactual there that could be explained but um, maybe that we would be here for another couple of hours um, Berg.
1: <laughs> Thanks for that introduction. Okay, speaking it's very of ca- warm <laughs> <in there. laughs> exactly, we've <laughs> we've been doing this for a while now, and we've given up on segways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you don't get, one. <laughs> don't I've get used, one. I've used all my good segways. Used all the segways. Um, so the book I'm recommending, um, I read uh, a couple of weeks ago, is called "Rebooting AI: Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust." It's by uh, two academics, Gary Marcus and Ernest Davis. It's a um, really Cut through the nonsense um, about where we are in the development of artificial intelligence, and therefore where we are in the development of things like autonomous vehicles, where we are in the development of AI that can, you know, provide ads on social media, everything like that. So the reason that this is important to read about is, um, and the reason it's important to get a no nonsense. Assessment of where the technology actually is is because we say a lot of things about AI and and particularly in politics And I think particularly in the moment that we're in it's very easy to make wild statements about the a importance of this technology and b the Challenges and threats that it might might place. so uh, There there are two um, big ones that you hear a lot about first of all is the AI uh, China for instance or um totalitarian states in general are using AI to further repress their citizens, and there is um, there is a lot to that, and there are some serious issues um, that we need to talk about. Um, but the other one is uh, – the other big fear that you hear is this idea of a superintelligence. We're worried that suddenly one day AI is going to take off in a sort of Skynet way. It's going to come into its own. Um, uh, it's going to – and and be able to – and the fear here is that AI – and artificial general intelligence will be able to improve itself without us having to improve it. And the moment it starts doing that, a, a author named Nick Bostrom has, has basically claimed that this becomes um, not apocalyptic but semi-apocalyptic for humans because that artificial general intelligence might not care about us. Um, so this book is a really cut-through um, assessment of that. And um, I have to say it is... The, the fears about artificial general intelligence, so an intelligence that can do more than just what it was programmed to do, can dis- make decisions to do new things, can improve itself, can make moral judgments, is um, so far away from what we are talking about right now. We are talking decades and decades and decades before we're even close to having anything like that so he contrasts or they contrast two types of artificial intelligence
0: isn't, isn't that sorry to interrupt isn't that a, a, a bit of a cheat in a sense of saying you might be worried about the potential but i'm just going to tell you that that's not 20 years away it's 100 years away so you don't have to worry about it
1: no no it's not to say that you shouldn't have to we shouldn't be we, we need to be thinking about these sort of things that's absolutely right we need to think about what happens when we develop technologies that might be threatening in the same way that we've uh, now, I'm not convinced that it would be threatening, but the, in the same way we think about nuclear safety, we should be thinking about Bio, AI safety, bios- all, all that sort of – it's important work. But it's also really important to understand where we are with this technology right now because we're in a situation where we're getting increasing numbers of autonomous vehicles, autonomous vehicles that are increasingly on roads, at least in the United States. We are dealing with AI when we – to um, uh, spend time on social media, we're dealing with AI when um, we shop at, at, at um, we go to the store and everything like that. Um, what AI is doing right now, what AI is doing right now is what we call machine learning or deep learning, um, and it's basically a very very complex and advanced form of statistical learning. It's looking for patterns in large quantities of data. That turns out it's really powerful. You can get it. You can get machines computers to recognize objects from that. You can get it to even create new um, artworks. You can get it to do all sorts of amazing things. What you can't get it to do is build on itself. You can't get it to do, you can't get it to make Decisions that aren't based on historical data. You can't get it to be an artificial general intelligence in the way that we is both whole, worry about. So the ca-
0: complete misnomer was that like the the worst bit of branding ever to call it artificial intelligence. Yeah, no, if it's a, not actually artificial, there's there's a lot
1: to that, and um, uh, there are some authors that will argue that there was a um, word in the 1950s, 1960s that was much better, cybernetics. Um, cybernetics was somewhat, um, uh, uh, fell into disrepute after a lot of sort of um, socialist computer programmers thought that that was the way we would get socialism. Um, But it's a really clear, it's a really engaging and really clear way to actually understand where we are on this technological change. And um, to bang on about a theme that I I bang on on this podcast all the time, we on the center right, libertarians, conservatives, classical liberals, we need to be very literate about the technological changes that are really radically and manifestly changing our economy and our lives. We need to be able to defend liberty. We need to be able to defend um, uh, the, the vision of society that we have while engaging and being engaged in all those changes. I think the left is doing that. I don't think they're doing it very well. I disagree with their conclusions. But the left are actually thinking about things like the gig economy the thinking about AI ethics. And it is incumbent on us to um, really deeply engage and inform ourselves on these issues.
3: Yeah, I think there's sort of an instinctual libertarian response to any new technology is that, A, it's sort of inevitable and the more the government tries to ban it, um, it's just going to be the people who are doing it illegally that end up with the technology, which is the worst thing. And also there is the potential for checks and balances through other new technologies. It's like the sort of nuclear proliferation thing that it's actually the more nuclear weapons there are, the less likely (laughs) there are that they're actually used. And as far as sort of the ultimate, whether artificial intelligence will ever turn into Skynet, for that to happen, we have to be able to artificially create the divine spark, the actual, the essence of life itself. And I think that, you know, for that, that's such a leap of faith for a lot of people to even think is possible. I think we'd have to fundamentally reinterpret how we understand the world if that were to be possible. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of like how the Big Bang theory doesn't actually answer many questions about the meaning of life or anything like that. It just gets us back to the starting point in a cycle.
0: I wonder. I wonder if. That's really what people are, are getting to here is is trying to answer those questions. Like, I don't know whether... Does this book have, like, the cultural history? I mean, but, you know, like, the word robot, you know, it was from a play in the 1920s, I think, yeah. a, a Czech play, and, and, you know, Terminator in the 80s and um, Asimov's uh, Foundation series. The, the idea of um, we're just around the corner from this kind of artificial intelligence and the potential for it to take over... Um, is part of the cultural history of mankind.
1: No, that, that's right. And, and that's what is fascinating about this as, a, as an area to watch and to learn about because they are trying to uh, – these technologists, if they have artificial general intelligence in mind, which um, certainly not everybody does, um, they are trying to reverse engineer how humans think or any, anything thinks – um, they're trying to uh, – there's a, there's a statistical um, machine learning technique that they call neural net learning um, uh, as if it works like a brain because it's modelled – Using multiple centres of um, decision making to try to this, try to.
0: This is what IPA researchers use for uh, reconstructing uh, temperature data. Indeed,
1: but it's but it, but that name is highly misleading because you think, oh wow, they're really building artificial brains. They're doing n- nothing of the sort. Um, uh, very powerful, very powerful AI learning techniques. Um, for very specific problems. If you've got a massive amount of data and you want to look for patterns that we as individuals couldn't identify and you want to be able to make predictions off the back of that pattern, all these sorts of things. Really, really powerful stuff in very specific domains. Um, Now, I think it's really exciting. And and the other... I I want to end with with this point. I I think... We should be very excited about these technologies, as well as literate and as well as um, being aware of the challenges that they face, like every new technology. I think we should be excited about the possibilities for them to make us more prosperous may- and even make us more free. Um, there is a deeply optimistic note in technological change. It's the sort of technology that got us the Industrial Revolution and got us the great divergence we're on the edge of the same sort of revolution um and uh 20 years from now i think we're going to think of these few years as a real pivot moment
3: i um, always think of the disneyland caro- carousel of progress carousel right? of where progress. it has every 20 years from 1880 to like 1960 and yeah, it yeah, yeah. moves
1: across and so then it's <laughs> like 1990 and they're the spaceships yeah, no, no, so the,
0: the future is awesome um since we are in the business of recommending books for people to read, uh, is any um, do you have to be tech, technologically no, no, literate sorry, to, I, to, to I, read? Or? I chose
1: this quite specifically because it talks you through in a in a very clear and um, uh, a, a very engaging, anecdote driven way. Right. So if you want to know what AI is, you want to cut through the um, op-ed level analysis that you see. Um, this is a really clear... But you don't have to be a computer programmer. It definitely. I mean, that clearly doesn't describe me. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thank
0: you, Chris. That is a that is another great recommendation. And uh, thanks, Zach, for coming in to talk about our, our two books. No worries. Well, Chris, that's been a terrific episode uh, and some terrific discussions over two weeks about some books that everybody should read
1: no it's been fantastic i'm going to take the host's privilege there are other books that they should read scott i want to be really really clear there are two books published by um some wonderful authors the first one is understanding the blockchain economy an introduction to institutional (laughs) crypto economics that's written by um uh berg C. S. c uh s davidson sinclair davidson and jason potts um Great book. Great book. Recommend to all. Uh, Very disappointed nobody uh, brought it up for their recommended reading. The other book is, of course, Crypto Democracy, (laughs) How Blockchain Can Radically Expand Democratic Choice, uh, by another, um, Darcy Allen, of course, our colleague Darcy Allen, myself and Aaron Lane, um, also published this year. So both fantastic books, despite, despite... The failure for our IPA colleagues to uh, recommend them personally. Yeah, no, they. uh, And to curry favour, to be honest, which would have been a very effective strategy (laughs) to be a guest next year, but apparently no one took
0: it. Go to the top of the queue in 2020. (laughs) Uh, And actually, summer reading, of course, Um, speaking as editor of the IPA Review, you will be getting in the mailbox very shortly, if you are a member, uh, the final edition of the IPA Review for the year which has some terrific reading in it um and if you want to receive that uh it's not too late to sign up and we'll make sure we get that in the mail uh which you can do by going to ipa.org.au uh but i just want to say thank you to chris berg thank you and uh thank you to our wonderful team in the studio which is uh uh, josh stranger Saul muscatel and steve walsh Uh, we'll be back with more looking forward next year